0: Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford.
1: Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. With us today is Ian Thornton-Trump, CISO at Cyjax, and we're here to talk about fixing the cyber problem. Ian, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch.
0: Completely my pleasure, and I'm excited to talk about this subject today.
1: First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities, that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity, until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. All right, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into cyber?
0: Yeah, well, it all starts way back in uh, military service in the Canadian military. So it was uh, me and a couple other guys and, um, you know, built around that culture of cybersecurity, culture of security. Because actually when I joined, we were we called it automated data processing or ADP. And obviously, I mean, it advanced quite significantly and quite quickly. I worked in military policing and I also was a brigade public affairs officer. But that culture of security, both on the operational side and then looking at social media and that huge impact that it had on operations overseas was something that I was acutely aware of. And then when I exited the military, because at some point the knees give out, I joined the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and spent a year with them working in criminal intelligence. It's a very similar aspect. And then I became a consultant and worked on all sorts of different projects and finally found myself over here in the UK in 2015.
1: So now you are CISO at a security vendor. Uh, You've taken a similar path to me, and I assume in between you've done some practitioner CISO roles as well. Tell me a little bit about your day job. What's it like being a CISO at a security vendor?
0: It's extremely challenging from the perspective of we're in our startup times. And so, I mean, it's really about what problems can you solve today? A lot of the times I'm very external facing, like doing these types of podcasts with folks to bring awareness and and talk about what I see as the big issues in, in cyber these days. But other times I'm back of house trying to figure out how we can leverage our capabilities to better serve our customers. So it's such a huge broad spectrum of role, which of course has a huge opportunity as well to do things that you really enjoy.
1: That sounds good. And I don't know about you, but I end up doing a lot of the true CISO stuff as well, where I'm, I'm hardening my organization. And, you know, as we speak, I got a meeting this morning coming up to review our tech stack and talk about some, you know, uh, bolstering our endpoint protections. I'm still doing a lot of the actual hands-on CISO stuff as well. I assume that's the case for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm joined, I'm really gifted and lucky of having a chief compliance officer who sort of works, I would say, more exclusively in that domain. I get to face customers more often and head up almost the marketing function of the company. I get to be a lot more external than I think a lot of CISOs who are normally sort of back of house people. A
1: couple of months ago, you wrote an article for Security Boulevard. And you compared the cybersecurity landscape to the environment. You basically said our cyber situation, similar to that of the, the great Texas freeze that hit and cost us $50 billion in damage. For the record, listeners, I lived through that freeze. It sucked.
0: I can imagine.
1: First of all, the most critical bit, we had no internet. Let's just get that on the table. But there was no power. There was no gas. Everything was being shut off. I was literally looking around the house for what I could burn in the fireplace towards the end there. It was a bad situation. So... The cybersecurity landscape is similar to that grid infrastructure landscape. And is it a lack of planning or preparedness that's putting us all at risk? In other words, we know that's what Texas's problem was. There was a lack of planning and preparedness. How does that correlate to the cyber situation?
0: Yeah, I think they're eerily similar. One of the realities that I think most Western nations face with is is the issue of investment in money and making sure that your company is returning value to shareholders. And unfortunately, we get caught up in that mission, as opposed to making the tough choices about investment in planning and preparedness. I think that a lot of the problems that we've created in cyber mimic a lot of the problems we've created in environmental problems. And yet now, you know maybe we do need a super fund to help clean up some of those mistakes. To me, I think the investment in cybersecurity is critical in the post-pandemic recovery, but also because of the nature of the digital economy, especially spearheaded by the United States. And I mean, as we get into this podcast, I'll be pulling out a number of different topics and areas that I feel pretty passionately about. But one of the things is, is I think we can all admit that there seems to be some sort of problem. And at the end of the day, you know, with your experience, my heart goes out to you and Texans and all the other people that suffered during that. But I have to say, you probably didn't really care why the lights were off. You cared about the lights being off. And I think that's the important part that when we start to dissect it, we can look at a cyber threat actor and doing what they do, like in Colonial Pipeline, one of the topics we're going to be talking about to disrupt that. But at the end of the day, you know, a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico can do very similar damage to the distribution network of petroleum products as well. So we are now crossing a line, if you will, where, Things like global climate change and then just our changing environment are starting to impact us as human beings on this planet. And what we're also seeing is the extraordinary cybersecurity situation also impacting our livelihoods and our ability to enjoy our life and our culture and our society.
1: You mentioned in your article the Volkswagen diesel emissions cheating scandal, right? They, I think the company you said got fined $34 billion USD, The executive overseeing the effort was actually sentenced to seven years in prison. So so we have an example there of legislation versus these environmental concerns, you know, being pretty strict, pretty severe. The the crackdown was legit there. I get that we want to align corporate greed to doing the right thing. And I get that you, you need some external pressures to probably pull that off. Otherwise, I think a lot of companies would be cheating. But when we talk about cybersecurity, it seems to me we already have some pretty strict cyber laws. But that they're aimed more at the perpetrators, right? And these laws end up being useless against these anonymous and or, you know, I'll call them extra jurisdictional. I don't know if that's a word. Yeah, it is. Adversaries. You know, you're 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 fighting somebody in another nation that, that doesn't respect your laws and doesn't care at all. What what can you do? You're helpless, right? And in the case of Volkswagen, the company was responsible. So I think that what you're getting at is laws that speak to what the company is doing, but there's a certain amount of almost blaming the victim. It feels like to me, if we're not careful when we put those laws in place, right now, some of that victimhood is well-deserved because there's companies that are failing to protect themselves and their customers. But by the same token, how do we reconcile that? How do we get these meaningful laws in place that are helping the situation, but that aren't uh, blaming the victim and sort of, You know, it's like I've already been hit with ransomware and now I'm also getting fined.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I like this, the the tough Texas questions, um, because this is an important aspect. I think that when you can cross the line into negligence and willful conduct is where the full hammer of legislation and regulation needs to descend on you. But there is a gray area up until that area. And I think what we need to do is we need to incentivize from a tax perspective, i.e. literally show me what you got for cybersecurity spend. And we will give you some sort of tax break on that spend. Like the way you can deduct, for instance, mortgage interest against your property. We need to start incentivizing the defense and draw a line that basically says, if you're not doing enough, then there will be a penalty. If you're doing enough and you still suffer, then okay, let's talk about it and let's assist you. Because I think what we're finding is there's two camps. There's folks that are not lifting a finger and doing a bare minimum. And the only way we see the, the actual fact of what was going on is slowly, and I would say torturously, it's revealed in things like class action, lawsuit discoveries, and or SEC filings. But if the company is a private company and not subject to those type of things, we never know what actually happened. We don't know if there was full-on negligence or if it was a bad situation. When we look back in the past and we see Equifax and we see the failure to patch their infrastructure leading to the giant data breach that they suffered, it's easy to sit back and point the finger and say, okay, you guys didn't do this. So you were victims. It's a bit more complex than that because the patch that was being asked to be applied would have required a tremendous amount of development effort to rewrite the application. And this is something that doesn't come out in that Equifax story very often, that there was, like you said, victim shaming because of this attack, in fact, the mainstream media is a lot to blame for this in basically simplifying a very complex series of events that happened. You know, and I think we we've discovered through careful analysis and through time and through people coming out and speaking that one of the major impediments that we have to improving cybersecurity is no mandatory data breach reporting. And one of the things that we need to move away of is, like you said, stop victim shaming and focus on what happened, perhaps some of the root cause analysis, but more like, can we prop this company up? Can we get it going in the right direction again? Because at the end of the day, what we're seeing is the cyber hurricane, if you will, is wiping companies off the map. That's costing jobs. That's costing the economy. I mean, the latest numbers I've seen from McAfee is that we're about to cross the cybercrime threshold of $1 trillion. That seems like a pretty major problem. And if we can just get companies to do a bare minimum cyber hygiene by incentivizing them through tax breaks, I think we could move the ball a lot more forward without making it too odorous to meet some sort of regulatory standard.
1: I love that idea of positive incentives. That's a lot better than, you know, you got busted and now we're making your lives more miserable. You know, here's, here's your fines on top of your ransomware you already had to pay. The positive incentive model, I think is fantastic. The trillion dollar figure, I didn't realize we were getting that close to the trillion. That's insane. That's, that's a substantial portion. That's a measurable portion of the global economy by the time you hit a trillion bucks, right? Like that matters. That's on a balance sheet. That, that would be a figure you would look at if you were in charge of the entire planet's economy, that trillion would matter since your article the colonial pipeline incident hit uh and we talked you know briefly at the beginning of the show about that now dark side the group who took credit for the attack appear to have been taken out right i mentioned in the in the last question like you know this idea that extra jurisdictional entities somehow are immune but they shut down their uh, presence and claim that their servers have been seized they seem to have actually been gotten this time which is an incredibly rare story it's an anomalous event as far as i'm concerned that the perpetrators are actually busted Um, But is there any way for us to increase the laws or the ability to enforce them versus the bad guys? Right, like we're talking about, let's say tax incentives or possibly fines on the negative side for the you know the the companies if they neglect and fail to do. But how are we to make that dark side story the common story? How are we to get to the point where we're always busting these guys? And I know that oftentimes it's a result of another nation's military effort. I mean, you know, nation-state stuff. You're you're never going to get the U.S. to properly arrest the Chinese military. That's never going to happen. How do we? possibly extend our stretch there, right? Because at the end of the day, the root cause is the bad guys. If, if we can get to the bad guys, what can we pull off there?
0: So there's a lot of mystery right now about what has happened to DarkSide. I take the opinion that they're essentially going through a rebranding Because literally, as I I said in a Forbes article, if you mess with big oil, you mess with big problems. And let's be clear, America has gone to war over oil before. So so if you are an actor and you've decided to attack this kind of infrastructure and cause what is essentially a political problem for the government, they're going to use all of their tools that they have to swat you down. And basically nobody is going to be able to take on America and win. All right, so we look at it through that lens. America is already the world's policeman when it comes to cyber, okay? For two really important reasons. One, you have all the money and expertise, okay? Two, you are very public about what you're doing by the use of indictments and Interpol red notices and extradition of these people from countries that have a mutual law enforcement assistance treaty or an MLAT established. Right. So this is why we've seen folks in the Ukraine and Lithuania and Russia brought to justice or scooped up when they decide that they're above the law and they can go on vacation in Poland and they're wanted by Interpol. So America's doing Doing a lot already the other nations the G20 need to start putting their money where their mouth is and they also need to celebrate their successes against cyber criminals a lot more publicly because the perception right now is the only person that cares right now is America and the only person um, that can be relied on to bring these guys to justice is the United States and case in point There was a person living very comfortably in a suburb of Montreal who had done $27 million worth of damage using cyber fraud and cyber crime. And the United States basically requested from Canadian officials his extradition, and that caught the Canadian officials by surprise. So so what does that tell you? It tells you that the United States has incredible capabilities that they can exercise, given the magnitude of the problem. I went on the record by saying that Darkseid is going to get the full brunt. They've won the full Monty from the United States. And I think right now everyone is scrambling for something deep underground.
1: So maybe they haven't been fully busted, but they've at least scattered and hidden. And, and you're right. The, the wrath of the U.S. is definitely something you don't want to incur when the entire federal government is after you. We've, you know, we've got SEAL teams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, we, we can send folks in. And that, you know, to your point in terms of the public aspect of it, the ones that get me, the ones that always crack me up. And at the same time, I'm a little bit admiring of it, is when the U.S. actually identifies the individuals in a nation state attack and will actually issue official warrants for these, you know, like Fred Smith over at this nation. We know for a fact, even though he's a member of that nation's military, we've identified it was Fred Smith and he's on our list now. I marvel sometimes at the degree of accuracy where they can actually nail down the individuals, not just the perpetrator in in the sense of the nation or was it their military or was it their intelligence infrastructure, but actually down to the individual we're after Fred Smith. That's mind-blowing to me. And, and we're very public about that stuff. And of course, we're never going to get Fred Smith, but it does add to the credibility of our defenses as a nation when we you know, plaster Fred Smith's face on a poster everywhere and say, if this guy ever leaves his nation, we got him. We know who he is and we're after him. And, and that's always impressive to me.
0: There's another aspect to it too. It's that once that happens, any entity that is connected with will be curtailed from doing business through the American banking system. So there's a huge financial consequences to being on the equivalent of the FBI's most wanted list, as well as you being on an Interpol red notice limits the amount of countries that you can travel to. It will also cost you credibility within your own organization. So their idea is really around degrading, disrupting, discombobulating the cyber capabilities by naming individuals and shaming them and potentially finding entities that they're connected to and, well, seizing those assets.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of good sense. There's more to it than just posturing and showing off the capabilities. You're right. There's definitely other other means of actually addressing and guilt by association, right, is, is one of the key yep. factors there. Like you're, you're disincentivizing anyone from sheltering that guy, basically. Once Fred Smith is wanted, other people should walk away and cease supporting him, or other entities should, if, if that's in fact what they were doing. That's a really good point.
0: It's also there's a reward. So if I knew that a guy like Wang Dong, who has been, I think he was the first wanted by the FBI, going back to the Titan rain attacks that were perpetrated by the Chinese actors. He was the first guy to get his mugshot on there. If I was a buddy of his and knew he was traveling somewhere, I might want to make a a million bucks by tipping off the right people. Right. So you're not going to be trusted.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's a standard law enforcement strategy that's always been around. Rat out your buddy for a prize. (laughs) or Rat out your enemy for a prize, right? Drug dealers turning each other in. Um, so that's that makes good sense. So uh speaking of US law, President Biden has issued his new executive order on cybersecurity and that that hit the streets and caused quite a quite a stir, quite a wave. There's still a lot of ingesting and hypothesizing and and reacting going on. One of the things he states in there is that insufficient cybersecurity defenses are a common factor in all the major attacks on the US private and public sector targets both. He he mentions Cyber neglect. And I think you've covered this a little bit already. And, and I want to side note, you mentioned tough Texas questions. I'm, I'm a Texan. We're not necessarily going to automatically go to regulation as a solution for anything here in Texas. No. Uh, we much prefer to carry our own six shooters. Thank you. <laughs> no. And to that end, it's very interesting that at a federal level, we've now got a federal government who stated point blank, there is neglect and we're aware of that neglect. And I think this is a critical step. I want to see some outside enforcement because quite frankly, as, as a practitioner of, you know, 20 plus years now, even though I'm not necessarily pro on regulation as my default go-to, I have to admit, I, you know, from a very personal level, I've had some very dark conversations with some friends in cyber in the last little while that I'm starting to feel to a certain extent helpless, to a certain extent, you know, it's like no matter what I do, some of these entities I've, I've supported or consulted or, or, or even worked for or whatever, Not everybody's going to budget cyber to the degree that I think they need to. Not everybody's going to enable and activate security controls and measures to the degree I think they need to. There's a constant uphill battle as a CISO no matter where you are. To get the funding to properly do your program, I don't think you can interview a single CISO on the planet who's going to tell you, "Oh yeah, I get 100% of everything." Unless they happen to work in a a highly selected, you know, niche like big banks in the U.S. Uh, I know one CISO who works at a big bank in the U.S. who's got literally an unlimited budget. As long as he comes up with a valid reason, they're going to support him and add that security control to his stack, you know, to his process and methods. That's rare. I would argue that 90 plus percent of CISOs are going to tell you they don't get what they need, what they want, what the program deserves. Like, if we're going to properly protect this entity, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And so here's the president of the United States saying insufficient cybersecurity is, is a cause of this. So this, I think, ties into your theme about preparedness and some of the stuff you talked about earlier in the show here. Interesting to me also was a specific statement that came from the White House. And I'm going to read this to you we encourage private sector companies to follow the federal government's lead. In other words, he can, in an executive order, tell the federal government how to behave. Okay, fine. You guys got to get off your butts and you guys have to start implementing better controls and measures and taking this more seriously. But at, at the end of the day, all he can do with the private sector in an executive order is encourage. And to me, it's a certain amount of helplessness, right? I mean, so here I am extolling, you know, my my darkest moments as a CISO. And here I am seeing this great executive order coming out. Hey, we're finally addressing cyber at that level in a meaningful way. And the best it's got is we encourage. So what's your what's your take on that? Right. There's a certain amount of helplessness there to me.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a huge missed opportunity. What the American federal government needed was an executive order. What the rest of us need is um, legislation. Mm-hmm. But maybe not regulation. So I, I'm agreeing with we can overregulate ourselves. But understand where America is sitting right now. There's a myriad of state data protection laws in effect already. There's no federally mandated data protection law, and it's broken up, you know, through other regulatory bodies like HHS for um, HIPAA and. And other sort of regulatory bodies that are requiring some basic cyber hygiene all the way down to your local bar for your um, lawyers and your judges in terms of their requirements. So it's a mishmash. So what could have happened was a funded effort by the federal government to align all of these state level laws into one comprehensive legislative package. And the reason I say it's a giant missed opportunity is like it or not, the Democrats have control of the legislative agenda and could actually make effective change to help. The problem, as I see it right now, is that we don't understand that our our next problem that we're faced with is a cyber problem. It's not, you know, the roads are not good right a giant proportion of that infrastructure bill needs to go to companies to replace their outdated and vulnerable equipment to stuff that will meet a modern standard to stuff that will go against the aggressors that we're seeing and quite frankly if your firewall is 5 10 15 20 years old and it's not properly set up it's actually more of a liability to you right now than you know patching and updating all of your endpoints right So really, it's talking about, in my mind, is that there's always going to be a certain level of criminality. I just feel like right now, the criminality is out of control. And it feels a little bit like, you know, you're right, we're demoralized, we're punch drunk, you know, it doesn't seem, we can't seem to move quick enough. This advice that he came from, falls on the heels of the billions of dollars they put into the Einstein program which was this super system to detect compromise which totally missed the solar winds malware or the seven pieces of malware that were found in the solar winds infrastructure so to sum up we're nowhere <laughs> and we need to get somewhere because what we've done in my opinion at the federal and state level in the United States has taken a lot of dollars put them in parking lots and set fire to them. And then after we finished that exercise, we asked for more dollars. And now what we're doing is we're paying criminals for when they attack us and are successful. We have to change the entire system from the ground up and we have to incentivize cybersecurity. And I think to my last point on this particular area, it's not about your controls, it's not about your people, it's not even about your procedures that you've put in place. It's about leadership as a CISO and as a cybersecurity person and owning that responsibility and driving it forward. And yeah, some people are going to have unlimited budgets because they have the trust of their organization. Step number one to get a budget is build some trust. Right. And if you and if you can't do that, then you know I'll be brunt. Maybe you're in the wrong job. Maybe this is not for you. But if you can figure out a way to gain the trust of your organization by small wins then you get to play with the big bucks and you get to fix real problems and i think that's the approach that we need to take
1: the word credibility has to be associated with your brand as a cso it has to be like like more more i think than many 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 roles in corporate leadership if you don't have the word credibility attached to your name you're you're sunk as a cso you're you're in serious trouble because some of the missions even if the individual at the helm is not necessarily the most trusted and the most credible everyone respects and understands that the mission has to continue anyway Nobody challenges the idea that you need a sales force to, to deliver products or services, right? Nobody challenges the idea that you need marketing to generate interest in the, in the field as well as, you know, inform the sales team how to sell. You could have a bad CMO for a spell and the marketing budget is still going to be there. You can have a bad CISO for a spell and the odds are the security budget won't be there. There's so much more hinging on the CISO. And I don't know why that is, right? That's, that's, its, own, <laughs> that's its own topic of conversation, I think. But you're absolutely right. Credibility and trust. So let me ask you this. Uh, This is a question I ask every guest as we get to the end of the show. I want to hear from you. What keeps you going in cybersecurity? We've talked about some pretty negative themes here. We've talked about some radical change that needs to occur that hasn't occurred yet. What gives you hope? What keeps you going? You get out of bed in the morning, you jump into your shoes and say, I'm going to do some more cyber today.
0: It's the belief that one person can make a difference, flat out. If somebody listens to this podcast and takes some action, does something, looks for more resources reaches out all of those things are really important in building our community because we have learned very quickly that we got to work as a team in most things in life individual achievement will only get you so far what we need to do is build networks of people that are passionate that care about the issues and that are going to help you try and solve problems and as i've gone through my 20 plus years of security industry experience it's not about what i know It's about who I know that might know the thing that I need to know, right? Going a little chainy there. But the point here is that we're in it together because if you have a problem on your network, there's a good chance the bad guys are using your network to attack my network. So until we start figuring out how to share information and work as a team and stop being so secretive about, you know, our security postures and share intel, the bad guys are just going to keep us siloed and they're going to keep winning against us.
1: Divide and conquer.
0: And so when I go into work and I talk about the big issues, you know, on podcasts and do my presentations, for me, it's about a really clear call to action. Start talking to people and figuring out how to address the problems that you have. Because we all have problems in the cybersecurity space. I've never seen anyone get perfect scores on audits, assessments, and pen tests. There's always something more you can do. So my big takeaway is to be a force for good, to unite people in a common mission, and to keep conversations going.
1: Keep them from dividing and conquering us. Support ourselves and support our our fellows. You know, this idea that the ISACs are just scratching the surface on, on the sharing, I think that's a whole topic and, and it's right for a whole nother show. But I'm, I'm with you. We have to quit being so secretive. It's in our nature as security practitioners to be secretive. But if we don't open the kimono, at least to our peers, we're getting ourselves in trouble. So full agreement with that whole message. I, I love that. And, and this idea that any, any one of us can make a difference. Uh, amen to that. Ian Thornton Trump, thank you so much for coming on down to the show. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>